adversity is advancement in the kingdom of God. Adversity is advancement. It's a great phrase, at least it is to me. I hope it's a phrase that you and I internalize today, a phrase that we get to live out by the grace of God. May His grace show us that adversity is advancement. The adversity is thick on the church in our text in Acts. They have persecution to face. Here's something very unfamiliar to us. They have racial or ethnic tension to face. An ex-persecutor shows up to remind them, perhaps, of the persecution they have faced, but then it's revealed that God is using him to advance the church. God shows up and shows us that adversity is advancement. Invite you to turn to Acts chapter 11 this morning, and as you turn there, we should note that Luke is in some ways rewinding the proverbial timeline. Way back to Acts in chapter 8, we have a persecution that takes place in Acts 8, where one Stephen ends up dying after he gives a very lengthy, the Bible is about Jesus sermon, in my own words, (laughs) but it's true. And Saul, of whom we read about his conversion in Acts 9, he maybe spearheads this persecution. It says he held the coats. Some wonder if that was more of a humbling thing. Okay, you're the one instigating all this. You hold the coats. The persecution is so thick that we read in Acts 8 verse 1 that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And in Acts 8.4, we also read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then in Acts 8, Luke covers Philip, who heads south into Samaria. But not everyone headed south, some headed north. And so that's kind of where we pick up the story today. Now we're assuming that some events occurred, certainly the conversion of Paul occurred, but perhaps Peter's witnessing to Cornelius is either occurring simultaneous to this, or maybe this passage that we're reading today may have occurred slightly before Peter um, witnessed to Cornelius. Well, I invite you to stand and read with me here in Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. We'll be reading through verse 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. Father, please show us in a real way that any adversity we face can be used to advance the kingdom. In fact, it seems the church corporately and the church individually, the kingdom of God, grows more under adversity. None of us like to suffer. None of us like to face persecution. But the great joy and peace of knowing you is that you take those things and use it and you multiply even those things for the greater good, for the good of our souls, and for the good of the church. So, Father, help us in these moments. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and our minds. Give us open ears to hear. May it be you and you alone who are speaking. And do your work of grace in our hearts. We beg of this from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our society feels like it can be more and more relatable to the world in some ways that the first Christians lived in. In some ways, it is a much far different world, but if we start to really think there are similar, if not the same problems or situations, just in different forms. Instead of pornography, strip clubs and the like, there were just gods where how you worship those gods is how you got the same pleasures of pornography, strip clubs, and the like. Instead of living as Christians in a society where public sentiment is covertly, sometimes overtly plummeting towards animosity against Christian thinking, Christians were instead new in society already overtly had plenty of legislation that were anti-Christian in character. Perhaps most similar in our time and in theirs is culture seems to come from the city, right? In our day, this happens through media mostly. All the big media outlets, the movie-making people, music-making people, the politicians, they all have hotbeds in certain cities. Cities seems to, to make the culture, in order to discuss other things throughout this passage, I want us to begin by being introduced to this city these disciples eventually end up at Antioch. The, the actual Antioch in the Bible here is below a modern-day Antakya, Turkey. Antakya today is around 220,000 people. It was thought to be a half a million or more in the book of Acts at that time. Antioch was about 15 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. Only Rome and Alexandria, Egypt, were the bigger cities of the day. Then there was Antioch. So it's like we're talking about Chicago as opposed to L.A., the second largest, and New York, the largest city. I had to look that up this week. So now you know I do some research. In fact, it's said that Antioch's walls enclosed a city that had larger area than Rome. Tradition says that Antioch is the birthplace of none other than our author here, Luke, the evangelist. Furthermore, a whole line of manuscripts that support your Bibles, the King James, the New King James, the Modern English Version, 
They all come from manuscript finds at Antioch. A few chapters later, in Acts 13.49, Paul and Barnabas are back at Antioch, and Luke writes that the end, the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. That's what the King James says. Other translations, like the ESV says, the Lord, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but some like to look at Acts 13.49, stating, well, that's where some of the manuscripts of our Bibles had started. We don't know. Could be. And Antioch is where some disciples come to. So while Stephen is murdered, martyred, setting off a hot persecution in Jerusalem, and Saul, who held the coats of the martyrs, apparently decides to go to Damascus to terrorize some more Christians. On that way, he's saved and converts to faith in Jesus. And then Philip, one of the twelve, decides to leave the disciples in Jerusalem and head south to Samaria. We have a few disciples going north. We read again in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord Jesus. I must have been using a different manuscript or verse translation. Sorry. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. See, we need to emotionally go here. And you're like, yes, I can't wait to do that. (laughs) Here's a slight way that we might be able to uh, emotionally enter in. A few Weeks ago, some protesters took over a few blocks in Seattle. I'm sure you didn't hear about that. They held it for quite a while until it was finally recaptured and disbanded. Yesterday, I saw a few videos online of literally an army, apart from the U.S. military, amassing. They bear the banner of Black Lives Matter. An army within our nation that's not part of the military, a separate army. I'm all for the right to bear arms. I'm all for the right to own arms. But when an army gets guns and has an ideology that BLM does, which goes far beyond than just saying our black brothers and the human race matter, which, of course, our black brothers do matter, that's kind of scary. <laughs> In the Middle East, we think remember ISIS or we think about Boko Haram. Renegade organizations with guns and, and, and ammunitions seeking out people to do harm to. They exist. You know, in election year 2016, I remember a bunch of celebrities threatening to move to Canada should Trump be elected that sadly none of them fulfilled their promises on. (laughs) But I also heard similar statements, it's time to move to Canada or out of the U.S. when President Obama and his administration was making lousy decisions as well, none of which also fulfilled their promises on. The persecution in Jerusalem is so hot that Christians who had had that memorable Pentecost Sunday, who had seen the resurrected Christ in Jerusalem, they sensed it was time to leave. See, the disciples weren't always nomadic. They had had homes. 
Peter, James, and John were from Capernaum. That was a seaport town. They were fishermen. The temptation could have been to return to fishing after Jesus died. And even though Jesus resurrected and commissioned them, maybe the high of Pentecost Sunday could have tempted them to just build their church in Jerusalem and and stay relatively put. Hot persecution happens. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow and one of our church members died because somebody killed them. A church member dies. His name is Stephen. A crowd of angry Jews who used to be brothers and at once had the same faith before Jesus with other Jews. They gather around and they stone Stephen to death. Who's next? (laughs) The officials and the leaders of Jerusalem seem to let Stephen get stoned to death. Can anything go? (laughs) Stephen certainly wasn't the leader of these Christians. Where's that Peter guy at? Where's those 12 people at? The danger is real and the disciples start to scatter. And when Philip went south into Samaria, other nameless disciples, probably not any of the twelve, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now here's what I propose, and I talked about this at the beginning. Because Luke frames this story by returning to Acts 8, namely the persecution that arose from Stephen's martyrdom, I believe Luke has backtracked on his time a little bit. In the latter half of Acts 9, Peter is healing Aeneas in Lydda, and he's raising Tabitha and Joppa. Maybe that's what Peter is doing at this time as these events here in chapter 11 are about to take place. And I say all that to say because these disciples going to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch were not talking to Jews. So verse 19 tells us. Now this was the norm. This was the expectation. Cornelius likely hadn't been converted yet. Peter hadn't faced the Jerusalem church for his actions. Going to Cornelius, what we talked about last week. And so disciples are going into Gentile territories. They're going straight to the synagogues. They're finding Jews that had been scattered and never returned back to Israel. They're telling them that the Messiah, Jesus, had come. But then there are some brave disciples. Then there are some disciples, maybe even a little bit more open-minded than Peter. We aren't told if they had visions to do the following. Verse 20 says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Cyprus uh, was an island off the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, We aren't necessarily to take that these were new converts. Remember in verse 19 it says that they went to Cyprus to witness to them. But we aren't necessarily confined to believe that it was new converts who immediately left Cyprus to go to Antioch. I'm not dismissing that it could have been. At the same time, though, we're told back in Acts 2, at Pentecost Sunday, that lots of folks from lots of foreign lands were devout Jews visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost. Furthermore, Barnabas, who will come up in our passage, he was originally from Cyprus himself. So it could be that Cyprus already had some established churches among the places listed of followers who in Jerusalem on Pentecost was another nation named Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. Maybe you remember a man who carried the cross of Jesus, Simon, was from Cyrene. A later leader in the church, Lucius, 
he's from Cyrene. So we don't know if these men of Cyprus and Cyrene were actually coming from these nations to go to Antioch or if Luke is just giving us their background, but maybe they're living like Barnabas is living in Jerusalem. What we do know is that likely, apart from the knowledge of Peter and his vision to witness to the Roman centurion, here they are witnessing to Gentiles in Antioch. Now the passage tells us that they are speaking to Hellenists. We have to do a little bit of unpacking here. Hellenist could be a broad term. In some instances, such as back in Acts 6, it refers to Jewish folks ethnically who are in turn Greek cultured. In other words, they're backslidden Jews who didn't practice their religion, but they aren't Greek in the blood sense. Does that make sense? Kind of the same way we know of Jewish Americans. We know of practicing Jewish Americans, and we just know of Americans who have Jewish ethnicity. Hellenists could be a similar term. <clears throat> Back here in Acts eleven nineteen and 20, it seems evident by its context. Namely, that some were speaking to no one except Jews, whereas these guys were speaking to Hellenists, which would be full-blooded Greeks or Gentiles. Now, if you were here last week, you'd remember that this was scandalous, unheard of, for Jewish people to try and win converts from non-Jewish people. But in the context of the broader narrative of Acts, the author is showing us, or Luke is showing us, that the third tier, if you will, of the Great Commission is happening, namely the ends of the earth. The Gentiles are being preached to. Make no mistake, these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene are witnessing to Gentiles in Antioch. They're giving the gospel to Gentiles, maybe even before or maybe at the same time that Peter is going to Cornelius. But let's back out and see this. Jerusalem, devout, zealous, angry Jews are pushing Christians away. Persecution. Adversity. And what happens? Exactly what the persecutors don't want to happen. (laughs) More converts. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of who believed turned to the Lord. Adversity is advancement. And this advancement of God's kingdom, this is advancement of God's kingdom through persecution. (laughs) It's the kind of... uh, Joseph's angry brothers sell him to slave traders only for him to become prime minister over a foreign nation that saves all of Israel sort of thing. Right? I won't say that again for you. Remember that story from Genesis. Great evil persecution leads to great redemption. Save souls. God's kingdom grows through persecution. I want you to take that one to heart today. Because every time you see legislation that demonizes what God lays out in His Word, and every time you see brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted for His namesake, every time you face persecution, know this, persecution advances the church. We've talked about this before, but Luke has these bookmarks in the book of Acts where he gives a few episodes and then he has this summary statement that sounds roughly like and the church was doing this and that and it grew and it's going to just, it was a great church. That's the Donald Trump translation, I guess. Verse 21, 
it's kind of one of those statements after the disciples arrive in Antioch, which is amazing. That, hey, persecution happened. Oh, and God's hand was on them and the number, great number who believed turned to the Lord. But what's even more amazing is back in Acts 9, after Stephen dies, after Saul, one of the persecutors who held the, held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, after he's converted, Luke says then, with persecution hot in Jerusalem, Saul's being chased by men who you used to likely persecute Christians with. Luke says then, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Persecution advances the church. You know, Jesus gives parables about the kingdom of God and they all have one thing in common. It only goes one direction. It only grows. It He makes sure that you note something, that it's like a garden. You don't always see the growth, but you can tell it grows whenever it's bigger the next day you check it. See, I am firmly persuaded that the church is only going to go one direction. It's always getting bigger. Now, I know some might say, but our nation, the USA, used to be a Christian nation. That may be, or it could be that more people were fine with faking it, but nowadays it's not popular to be a Christian. (laughs) doesn't mean we lost Christians. It means the hypocrites have exposed themselves. Persecution will advance the church. But the church here is facing more adversity than just in the form of persecution. See, it took a vision from God for Peter and an angel for Cornelius Cornelius, for this whole racial Jewish and Gentile thing to be broken down. Adversity is on the church in the form of long-standing traditional hostility. Let's start back in verse 20 again and read through verse 24 as we look at this adversity. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. It's interesting we see two different reactions. See, for for Peter, maybe it's because he's kind of a leader among equals. But after he goes to the Roman centurion's house, Acts 11 opened up telling us that he kind of had to take this to the Jerusalem church. We kind of had to study that part incognito last week. I, I pulled from his discussion at that Jerusalem meeting as we were studying the actual event itself. Now, it could be because Antioch is farther away than Caesarea where Peter was. But as soon as Gentiles start hearing and turning to the Lord, well, now the denomination's got to get involved, right? (laughs) This is what happened to Peter. This is what's going to happen here. Jerusalem's like, what are they doing up in Antioch anyways? Those guys, that's not even in Israel. Well, let's go rein them in, boys. This hostility between Jew and Gentile, God had prepared them for this in the second tier of the Great Commission, where they had to go to Samaria. And it probably made it easier for the young Jewish church to get over their prejudices. 
Back in chapter 8, after the persecution happens and Luke covers what's happening in Samaria, we actually find that the same protocol was followed as to what's happening here in Acts 11. When Philip went down to Samaria and unexpectedly Samaritans start receiving the gospel, Samaritans were like the first hurdle. (laughs) Jews had a hard time believing that Samaritans were loved by God, saved by God, and they believed. How can this happen? That Mother Church Jerusalem didn't send Barnabas then, they sent Peter and John. Well, was Philip not enough? Rather, it was Jerusalem and the apostles of God were verifying what they were hearing. We get this picture plainly in in places like John 4 that, that Jews did not like Samaritans and Samaritans did not like Jews, but then Jesus broke that barrier by talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, revealing that he is the Messiah, extending the gospel, extending salvation to her. Jesus was breaching this traditional hostility. And when the first church of post-resurrection of Jesus encountered the Samaritans again, like the woman at the well before them, they were coming to Jesus for salvation. And the first church had to test those waters. They had to send some investigators. They had to send in down the big guns to do some verifying. And Peter and John do more than that. They pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 8 tells us that Peter makes use of this trip and witnesses to more Samaritan villages on the way back to Jerusalem. Well, the report of the Antiochian Gentiles becoming saved came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch in this occasion. Apparently Peter was busy, and we don't know what John was doing. Barnabas was a great guy to send to Antioch. The leaders in Jerusalem knew who they had in Barnabas. As I said earlier, Barnabas was from Cyprus himself. Maybe if Jerusalem knew that, well, it's those Christians from Cyprus that are doing this witnessing to the Gentile thing, maybe they would have a better interaction with a native like Barnabas. Second of all, Barnabas's character had been nothing but generous. This is the guy who sold a bunch of his land to give that money to the church. This is the guy who took in Saul when no one else would. Barnabas is so much better than someone who would go there and say, well, are they circumcised? Are they following all the meat-eating laws? Are they meeting in synagogues? Are these people really saved? Barnabas is not like that, thank God. And those people we know existed in the church. A few of them harassed Peter when Peter had the audacity to witness to a Gentile. And here's what Barnabas sees. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas comes and he sees nothing but God's grace. People are getting saved, right? Maybe for Barnabas, this is a vacation of sorts. He's not in the hotbed of persecution in Jerusalem. He's in Antioch. And while Jerusalem Christians are fearing for their existence, while they practice the faith, here are Gentiles wanting in on God's kingdom. Here are Gentiles responding to Jesus. And even more than just, you know, Barnabas taking mental reports, getting ready to report back to Jerusalem, you have nothing to worry about, these guys are doing great. (laughs) Barnabas instead gets in on the action. 
The HCSB would say at the end of verse 23 that Barnabas encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. I'm so glad God has brought salvation to you, right? Now return the favor and cling unto Him as much as He has clung to you. Do the gospel. He laid down His life for you. Now you lay down your life for His. I mean, Barnabas didn't know so far the default response of gospel rejectors is hate, venom, and persecution. And though the new church in Antioch in pagan Syria are are practicing maybe relatively peacefully, apart from persecuting Jews... Maybe Barnabas foresaw, if he not outright knew, that, well, Jews in Antioch would persecute and pagan Gentile town officials would likewise persecute. Barnabas knew that saving converts is one thing, but saving loyal disciples was the Great Commission. That's the goal. Not just people who say, I accept Jesus into my heart, but people who will say, and I will surrender to Him every day. But here's... What's happened? Barnabas was sent to verify what John and Peter verified with the Samaritans. Indeed, these traditionally hostile people were actually brothers in the Lord. God had torn down the wall of hostility where adversity would exist. Tension between the races. Advancement came. Advancement came. Again, we hear that line... What happened after Barnabas came in and checked on the happenings in Antioch, the controversy where Gentiles were being let in on the gospel? We get that summary line again in verse 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Do you hear that? What will hostility do to the church? God will take that adversity and advance His kingdom through it. No more Hostility, such a timely word in our day with our news, isn't it? What's interesting to me, most of you know that I'm a Bible geek. Like Christy says, I want you to count all your Bibles. <laughs> like I'm sure I have more than I'm able to physically read in my lifetime, but that doesn't stop me. And I've found, much like Alcoholics Anonymous, that there are other geeks out there like me. Um, we meet together digitally on Facebook groups. We nerd out together. It's fantastic. Hi, I'm Kevin. I've been collecting Bibles for four years. No. And in the last years, I've met two black brothers in the Lord through Facebook. One is from Louisiana. One's from Ohio. Both of them I even text. They even, we shared our numbers. We just text fairly regularly. We're pretty good friends. And it's, it's interesting to me that the Lord would bless me with such great friendships as we came into the year 2020, 2019 for one of them. In a time where the world wants to say races do divide, punishment needs to be done, hostilities need to flare up, you owe me this, the Lord breaks down the hostility. The Lord advances His kingdom over that hostility. And adversity becomes advancement. Barnabas is a thoughtful, resourceful man. Because after sticking around and strengthening the church in Antioch, maybe he begins to sense the challenges of ministry in Antioch. See, Antioch is a cosmopolitan, learned, Greek-speaking, intellectually driven, and maybe it's right up at the alley of a guy named Saul. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It was, of course, Barnabas who had accepted Saul as a brother in Christ. In the first place, the first time Saul showed up in Jerusalem after his conversion, 
In fact, the disciples wouldn't have him. They were scared of him. But because Barnabas received him, eventually so did the disciples. And after some ministry in Jerusalem, Saul was sought by likely what used to be his persecutors in arms <laughs> to be killed himself. And so where we last left off with him was in chapter 9 where the disciples saved his life and sent him back to Tarsus, which is Saul's hometown to begin with. That is apparently where Saul has been for an unspecified amount of time until Barnabas decides Saul is a good fit for this church in Antioch. Maybe Barnabas wants Saul to know that he's not only appreciated, but he's desired in the church's greater ministry. Now, I said maybe there. We read in verse 26, And when he had found Saul in Tarsus, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, most commentators love to split hairs on verse 26. And they say, where it says found, that implies that Barnabas had to do some searching, as in maybe Saul wasn't to be found at a residence in Tarsus, but maybe he was out and about ministering. It could be. Acts 15.41 tells us that eventually Saul returns to the area and he strengthens the churches. What churches? Maybe churches that Saul either planted or ministered to before. It could also be that Barnabas had never been to Tarsus to begin with. So for any newcomer, you have to do some searching. Whatever the case, they came back and they both minister in Antioch. And here's what I like about this picture. Barnabas from the Jerusalem First Church didn't come in and own the place. He didn't come in and say, I'm from Jerusalem. I got this covered. I've been with the 12. I got seniority. Rather, he realizes maybe his limitations. And he also recalls Saul. Maybe he recognizes that Saul needs a job. Saul's too great of a mind to just push away to Tarsus and let him do his own thing there. Rather, Barnabas recalls that Saul had told him that he had had a drastic conversion and that God has a mission for him to be a witness among the Gentiles. And Barnabas wants to be helpful in seeing him to that mission. In fact, Barnabas wants to hold him accountable to be about that mission. Where it may be that Saul's reputation, Saul's character, some believers of the day might shrink back and minimize and, and want to sweep Saul under the rug. Well, he says he's a Christian, but it might be better if he just stays in Tarsus and do his own thing and not rock the boat. Barnabas knows that God is a God who doesn't see adversity in Saul's stained character. God sees opportunity for advancing the kingdom. And friends... What did Barnabas and Saul do at Antioch? For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. That's just the beginning. We're reading 187 words in the ESV and the founding of, no doubt, probably the most influential church, maybe second only to Jerusalem in this era. It certainly may surpass Jerusalem if you want to talk about a church that sends missionaries, Saul and Barnabas, and plant churches. That's Antioch. Now, the church in Rome would be influential too, but Rome perhaps wasn't planted yet. But even in Rome, know that the stained character of Saul would write a very influential letter to that other very influential church, Rome, and that letter would become Scripture along with the other books of the New Testament Saul writes. My point? God advances His kingdom through what others see as adversity in Saul's stained 
character. Do you ever feel like you've ever committed too many sins to keep you from fulfilling God's potential in you? Do you ever think your relationships are beyond redemption? That your situation is beyond redemption? That your life in God's kingdom right now is beyond redemption? And I want to tell you where you see adversity or even where the critics and the skeptics and the legalistic Pharisees in the church sees adversity, God sees advancement. No character is too stained and sullied to where God cannot turn that around and use you by His grace and for His glory. And before you say, yeah, Kevin, but I'm blank, guilty, old, retired, just tired, too dumb of a Christian, too immature of a Christian, I love how the Holy Spirit ends this verse 26. I love how God drives home here that He can turn the adversity of a stained character like Saul. He can take the persecutor and make him the preacher. He can take a zealous Christian hater and make him a zealous Christian proclaimer. And you're going to read this next phrase and then ask, where in the world am I coming from? Follow me. Verse 26 at the end. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We see perhaps what they themselves, or at least what Luke called them in this very sentence, and he doesn't say it's Christians, he said it's the disciples. Three other times in Acts, they are referred to as followers of the way, possibly taken from Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But we see that the believers receive this title, or it seems the wording would suggest that they were first called Christians. It means follower of Christ or belonging to Christ, or little Christs. The only two other times the term Christian is used again in the Bible, it's used once condescendingly by King Agrippa to Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And it is used by Peter in his epistle stating, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Now in all three of these together, they were called Christians. One uses it condescendingly, and Peter uses it as a title that one suffers under. All this seems to suggest that it was probably a derogatory term given to the believers. This seems to be a norm to give titles to a people that we don't like, and so we belittle them with names. What are you, little Christs, Christians? This sort of remark, given being derogatorily and then accepted by those people, is the same story for Lutherans and Anabaptists and Quakers, and the terms and the list goes on. All titles given out of derision and condescension condescension that adherents just come to accept. Because the adversity of a label is not an adversity, but an advancement for the kingdom. To where Christian came to be the label held worldwide for followers of Christ. Now, I know in this day and age, there is this movement that I want to be called a Christ follower because admittedly, Christian has come to encompass a wide range of people, many of which some true Christ followers are not comfortable with being identified with. The label of Saul as a persecutor was not an adversity that couldn't be overcome. The label of sinner, unforgiven, too far gone, too ill, too physically incapable, whatever label the enemy might want to throw your way as a means of adversity is not an adversity. It's an opportunity for advancement in the kingdom of God. So at the end of the day, adversity is advancement. Adversity is advancement. Persecution comes, the kingdom shall advance. 
hostility rises between races and peoples and groups, the kingdom shall advance. The enemies and critics and foes throw character stains in your faces or in the faces of all Christians for evils we sinners are guilty of. Even so, the kingdom shall advance. Have Christians ever been labeled as bigoted, backwards, judgmental? Even so, the kingdom shall advance. It's my prayer that our church would be Antioch. May it be in Woodland that if persecution comes in small measure here or in big measure in the world, that by God's grace His kingdom will continue to advance. May His Spirit be at work here, and if hostility exists, may His peace continue to break down those walls and advance His kingdom. And if blights and stains exist, and I know they do, and I bear them myself, nevertheless, by God's grace, may the kingdom advance. And whatever labels you or I receive, may the kingdom continue to advance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's amazing, the book of Acts. Some people read it and think about the good old days, and wow, look at how much they were doing. But we realize as we study deeper, hey, they live in the same world we do. They had the same struggles, the same problems. They had the same animosity and adversity happening towards them. But you use any and all things, evil things, bad things, adversity, and you use it to advance your kingdom. Father, you absorb all pain and hurt and disease, and it just seems to make you want to redeem more and more. Father, that gives us hope. It's easy to think on a remote hill in Idaho, we don't have all the resources we need. We don't have the best people. I'm not the best person. I can't volunteer. I can't. You use all those things, and okay, well, I'll advance my kingdom with that. Thank you for your grace here. Help us to be willing to do more and be more because we trust that you can use even our loaves and fishes and feed millions with it. Help us, Father, to trust that and help us to step into that and to step into faith to know, well, God's calling me to do something here. I think I'm ill-equipped. Great, God will use that. Father, we thank you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.